she said she had looked like she was six months pregnant and my mom you know was five foot nine 125 pounds soaking wet so something was obvious I had called my sister uh, who's a nurse and said you know like what does acetes mean like what is that and she said you know I I don't want to freak you out but that's usually from cancer genetics isn't always black and white and the emotions and decisions surrounding genetic testing can be even more complex. Welcome to Patient Stories with Gray Genetics. I'm Eleanor Griffith, a certified genetic counselor and the founder of Gray Genetics, a telehealth genetic counseling and consulting service. It seems like there are constantly headlines in the news about genetics, but few news stories focus on the patient experience. At Gray Genetics, we are collecting patient stories, your stories, Every other Tuesday, we share an interview with a patient or a genetic counselor. She was a happy, vibrant, gracious human being who never had a bad word to say about anybody. What a gift my mom gave me to give me life twice. Just over two years ago, Tawny Rother lost her mother to ovarian cancer. Her mother carried a mutation in a gene called RAD51D, which increases the risk for ovarian cancer. Tawny learned she carried the same mutation as her mother. At 34 years old, a mom to three children and recently engaged, Tawny had her ovaries and fallopian tubes removed. Tawny lives in Kelowna, British Columbia, about a four-hour drive from the nearest genetic counselors in Vancouver. She actually received her genetic counseling through telehealth, and she talks about that experience in this interview, too. Your mom died of ovarian cancer just over two years ago, is that right? Correct. How was she diagnosed and how did her testing come about? So she originally got diagnosed back in October of 2010. Um, her and my dad were in Mexico and she got really sick and had a lot of acetes and came in, um, went to the doctor there and they did some ultrasounds and sent her here, uh, back to Kelowna, sorry. And she was diagnosed the next morning and was diagnosed stage 3C with ovarian cancer. And... It was a whirlwind at that point. So she had her first surgery um, in November of 2010, then did her first round of chemo in January after she had um, gained enough weight back and was a little bit healthier. Um, but we didn't find out about RAD51D until after she had passed. Oh, okay. So she had genetic testing done uh, May of 2011 and they tested for BRCA1 and 2, which she was negative for. Um, but I really felt like I knew that there was something genetic. Her mom uh, had passed away from ovarian cancer as well when my mom was 12. And her mom would have been 48 when she passed. And I just thought it was just too much of a coincidence for it to not be genetic. And sure enough, we found out after she had passed that it was RAD51D and that was that was the beginning of that all. <laughs> How is it that you found out her test results only after she had passed? Um, she was in a lot of clinical trials when she was sick and before she had passed she did two or three clinical trials and had kind of given them the okay to do whatever testing necessary after she had passed um, just to try and help somebody and thankfully she did. <laughs> So since you found out about the RAD51D mutation related to a study, how did, how did that information actually get to you? 
so my dad had called me. I don't even remember how long after my mom had passed it was. Um, he just called me one day and said, I need to talk to you. We, you need to get a pen and paper and write down this name and phone number. So I did and thought it was a little strange and he went on to explain that he had just received the phone call from genetic counselors uh, that my mom had tested positive for the genetic mutation and I needed to go get tested. And it was never really a matter of if you want to get tested. My dad was not prepared to lose somebody else and it was, you are going to go do this. And I mean, I felt the same way. There was no question it was going to happen. Um, so I went and they sent you a pamphlet. So you fill out all this paperwork and you send it back to them and they give you a call about a week after they receive it and you have a half hour long interview over the phone with somebody from the genetic counseling program and go over all of your paperwork all over again and that was that and did you go in to meet with people in person or it was just done over the phone yeah it, i went in after about two months later they had an appointment um, here in Kelowna for me so i went and met with uh, you actually go to this little room and it's just like a video conference call and we my went with my dad and we spoke with uh, one of the genetic counselors about all the information again and, you know, not a lot of new information came up. It was just kind of the same stuff we had talked about on the phone and um, my family history and what my options were. And she wanted to know if I was going to go ahead with it or if I wasn't interested. And I guess a lot of people aren't interested, which was, it, it's really surprising. It seemed like she talks to a lot of people who say that they don't want to have testing done. Right, testing or if they find out they're positive that don't want to do anything about it, that they choose not to have surgery. Why do you think that might be? I don't know. I was talking with my cousin um, from my biological dad's side who had lost her mom the year before I lost my mom and she lost her to kidney cancer. And she said, you know, if there was ever a test to tell me if I was going to get it or not, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it. And I did understand she has a small child and I thought oh, that, you know, that's so much information, it's such a wealth and such a gift that my mom was able to give me and to give countless people. Why wouldn't you choose that? And she said, you know, I'm going to go at some point, so I don't, I don't care to know. Yeah. And I just thought it's so strange. Why would you not want to live as long and healthy as possible? I mean, with some cancers, it is harder than with others and that there's not always like screenings and preventive surgeries that can be done, mm -hmm. but it seems like with ovarian cancer, you know, despite um, like all of the misery that you're going through dealing with the hormone issues, that there really is a surgery that can like nearly eliminate, eliminate that risk. It's exactly. And I couldn't imagine ever putting my kids through this because of a selfish reason of just not wanting to. How old are your three children? Uh, 13, no, oh, sorry, 11, uh, 14, and 15. Okay. So much too young to have to worry about testing for themselves yet. Yeah, I told them the day I found out that I was positive, um, just to alleviate kind of any stress or stuff they might hear, because I knew that I was going to do my surgery as soon as I was able to. So I wanted to open up the communication lines and just see what they thought about it. Um, my kids are really, really smart and they've been through a lot and they know that this was something that was really important. So the, you know, they all know that eventually they will get tested and find out, my son included, and just to make sure, you know, if they have it and they choose to have children that they can get tested as well if they're positive for it. I was looking up 
uh, Kelowna. I was like, what? For some reason from your Instagram, I thought I had in my head that you were in California. Maybe oh. that was just like Pacific time. So I didn't realize that like, you're in BC and Kelowna gotcha. is like, so now I'm seeing where it is relative to Vancouver, BC. So I, yeah. I, I know in, in Canada, they use a lot of telehealth. So that's, you right. were, that's why you, you spoke with the genetic counselors at, um, UBC over like, over telehealth just because you're located like four hour drive from there. Right, right exactly. Okay, how was that? Because like I do I do telehealth, but that's still kind of I think it's new-ish within the field of genetic counseling. So how do how yeah. was what was that like for you to to talk? It to was great over the phone and video instead of like in person. <laughs> yeah, it, you know it, it was it was okay. I appreciate the video. You know, it was a lot. It was, I mean, it, all this is really emotional stuff. And I think that at that point it was so fresh that um, it was a lot harder than I wanted it to be. <laughs> Just bringing everything up again. And, you know, all the family that we've lost in the last 10 years has been kind of insane. So talking about that uh, and having my dad there was really great. Having that option to bring somebody with me rather than sitting in a stuffy doctor's office, you know, and people you didn't know. You don't yeah. want to kind of pour your heart out and go over all that and sit crying in an office with somebody that you've never met before. So that, I mean, that was really great. And it, it here we did it at the cancer clinic. So there are a lot of familiar faces that I got to see. My mom was treated there initially. So I knew a lot of the people kind of in and out of there it was great. Yeah. So you're still going to a doctor's office, but then from there being connected by video. Um, well, it's, our cancer center is, I mean, it's kind of great. It's uh multifaceted they've got a lot of stuff going on there so they do do treatment there and they do consultations um, and it's connected to the hospital so it's uh -huh. right um, you know where they do all the surgery and everything but they have lots of info sessions and it's a really cool place so yeah it's just like a, we had a little boardroom area that we went in and then they how did it work logistically in terms of drawing your blood? They just they just drew it there and did they send it to UBC or how does that work? Where is it actually gets tested? So I went just across the street the next week. So they send you the requisition in the mail. And so I went and got the requisition. Then yeah, I just went to the lab in town at the hospital. To actually have it drawn. And then they send it off. It's, all, it's like such a different system from the U.S. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you mentioned that when you started looking around for information on RAD51D, you weren't really able to find anything. Like what, what have, what's the information that you found out there now, or have you found support groups or like when you've talked to doctors, um, I'm, you've presumably found a surgeon who had some understanding of RAD51D and was willing to do your oophorectomy at least. Right. So she, my surgeon was really great. My family doctor has been my family doctor since my oldest was born. I was pregnant with my oldest, so it's about 16 years now. And she was fully willing to help me find a surgeon somewhere. Um, the one option was to go to Vancouver where my mom was diagnosed and where she had her surgery, just because of the pathology that had to be done on the fallopian tubes. Mm -hmm. um, it's not available everywhere. So we found one surgeon here who actually just moved from Calgary, Alberta, and she pretty much knew nothing as well, but she found the answers, which was really great. And there's not even a lot of information out there for physicians. Right. There's, you know, there's some reports and some studies done and some, you know, medical journal stuff, but not a lot of information, especially being in you know your mid-30s and having uh, having your ovaries and your fallopian tubes removed 
So the surgeon was, I mean, she did as much as she could and told me what she knew. Um, but I definitely wasn't prepared for the hormone side of things. The surgery went great. Um, but yeah, that the hormones was a whole different world. And how long ago did you have your surgery done? I had my surgery May 9th. Okay. So super recently. Yeah. What hormones are you taking and how is, how is it going? So I'm doing estrogel uh, twice a day and take progesterone in the evening. So the progesterone is just a little pill I take once a day. And the estrogel is an awesome cream you can put on your arm or your stomach or your leg. Um, I figured out a dosage. It took a while. Uh, they really suggest using, especially somebody my age, using two pumps first thing in the morning. And I found that I was still getting migraines towards the next morning and like it wasn't lasting that full 24 hours so I kind of investigated it and did some of my own research and there wasn't any info out there especially for somebody my age um, there was a lot of information for people using it if they had like one ovary removed or if they had low functioning ovaries but nobody with a BSO so I started using one pump in the morning and one in the early evening when I get home from work and found that that's working really, really well. But the first two weeks was okay. horrible. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I mean, I would think that some of the recommendations might be similar for people with BRCA Definitely. mutations who have this out. Has that yeah. sort of information been helpful? A little bit, but a lot of the time they have their uterus removed as well. So they aren't on the same hormones. So that kind of changes everything again. So, I mean, the groups I found, um, like with BRCA1 and 2, had been really welcoming and supportive, but again, my questions weren't able to be answered. Do your children notice differences in you now that you're dealing with these hormone issues post-surgery post and all of the, like your medications and stuff? Does that, how does that play into your family life now? I don't think so. I think, I mean, my fiance notices, obviously. I was a basket case for the first couple of weeks. It was just, you know, not, never went into full menopause. So I started my um, hormones the morning after surgery. And I mean, I've always had hormone issues. It's been a huge problem. I've gone through migraines every single month. I'm usually in the hospital in the ER for migraine medication with my, um, cycle and it's, it was awful. So I think I was nervous for it to go full steam ahead because I knew I would have a, almost a permanent migraine if I didn't start with the hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. So never full menopause, but I was hot, hot, hot for the first couple of weeks. So, that, I mean, it was great for my fiance. He runs hot always and I'm always, I was always <laughs> too cold. So now it was like, hey, finally on your level, it was really good. Yeah. But forgetful. I was so, so forgetful and zoned out all the time. Like I went back to work. Uh, I had my surgery on a Wednesday, took Thursday, Friday off, and then had the weekend and I threw him a surprise 35th birthday party, which I mean, looking back was probably not the smartest thing to do. <laughs> it was a little bit overboard, but I uh, went back to work Monday and had planned on working from home for a couple days and needed all of my screens at work. So I went into work and ended up working for nine hours that first day instead of my usual eight, which was great. <laughs> but um, I think half of the day I just spent staring at my screens, not knowing what I was doing. But my, um, my manager actually had ovarian failure 
mm. at 35 or 36. So she thankfully knew what I was going through and was like, you know, she was my my biggest source of information in all honesty. Um, even though she puts out a little bit of hormones, she still takes uh, birth control pills every day to get those hormones going a little bit. Uh-huh. And she's been great. She was so much help told me exactly what I should be experiencing. And I was kind of like clockwork from what she had told me. So it was really helpful. Yeah. Do you know from talking with um, either your surgeon or your primary, your family practice doctor, um, do they, how do they predict or do they that you'll adjust and that things will kind of normalize for you as you continue taking these medications? Um, my doctor, my f- surgeon anyways, is kind of using me as a guinea pig. <laughs> she went to a seminar actually about a month after my surgery for um, some hormone replacement therapy information and came back and said, hey, this is what we're going to do. You know, I was talking to all these people and this is what we should be doing. And she um, advised that we do a bone density scan just to have a baseline and then do uh-huh. another one in five years. So I went to, she went to do the referral paperwork and they won't cover it because I don't fit the criteria. Oh. So, I mean, if I want to pay a thousand dollars and do it myself, sure. But I mean, I have three kids and a wedding coming up. Not really what I want to be spending my money on at this point. Um, but yeah, they have, they really didn't know. They deal with women who, you know, are going into menopause or who are using, um, the gel especially the estrogel as kind of like a top-up almost Mm -hmm. um, not fully reliant on it so they say you know find what feels good start off with and with estrogel it's nice you can start with like even a half pump and see how you go from there and I know from talking to my dad when my mom was using the estrogel um, she had her full hysterectomy and debulking surgery right after she got diagnosed Mm -hmm. so she you know, worked up to two pumps a day and then kind of petered back a little bit to find what felt good. But she didn't start her HRT for about two months after surgery. Okay. So she went through full-blown menopause and hated every second of it. And I was like, there's no way I'm going through that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't imagine. You're only 34 years old. Did you consider waiting until later to have surgery done? Here, the recommendation from the genetic counselors uh, from BC, from like Health Canada, had recommended before 40. Okay, yeah. So that you can eliminate all of that, just because the main reason is the fallopian tubes, right? We want the fallopian tubes out first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So I toyed with getting, doing two surgeries, either having my fallopian tubes out first and then waiting until a couple of years went by and doing my ovaries just so I didn't have to go through all the hormone stuff. Uh, unfortunately, my surgeon did not want to do two surgeries in three years, so we did them all at once. And in BC, they're recommending at least to get, have the fallopian tubes removed just because of the evidence that a lot of ovarian cancer might actually start in the, in the fallopian tubes, right? Exactly. I just think that it's so important um, to do what's best for your family and for yourself medically. I um, I went through the worst seeing my mom pass and I have three kids of my own and I just think it's so important to be able to have that information to make a decision. And now whether I waited until I was 40 or 38 or had it now, it was just what worked best for me in that timeline. 
think it was really important to just do it as soon as possible and just make sure there was no chance of it happening. What do you see that people talking about ovarian cancer and like ovarian cancer awareness month coming up in September? What do you feel like people are aware of and what do you feel like they're not so aware of or that there needs to be more education around? I think the main thing that people need to be aware of is trusting their gut and really listening to what your body's telling you. My mom had um, cysts on her ovaries for quite some time and they kind of fell in that we'll wait and see size uh, and the last one that she had had um, from my understanding was like a millimeter away from one that they would biopsy and test and she had had it for years. So I think really getting a second opinion if you're unsure. Mm -hmm. I'd rather be told, no, it's nothing by two or three doctors than just hearing it from one and going with that because it changes so much, you know, all the information that we get, it's always evolving. And I think that, you know, if you were to go and get a second opinion from somebody, maybe they've read newer research and maybe they are one step ahead of the game and they would, you know, go and do something about it. And I, I hate to think that that would have saved my mom but it, uh, yeah, listen, listen to yourself and be aware of your options. Um, at this point, had I not been given the opportunity to have my genetic screening covered, mm-hmm. uh, and if I hadn't known that my mom was positive for RAD51D, I would have robbed a bank to pay for this, honestly. I think it, I, I knew, I knew there was something. I inherited everything from my mom, from my fingers to the sound of my voice, to the way we write. I knew that I was going to be positive for something. And yeah, I, I think it's so important that you figure out a way to pay for that screening if you have any doubt in your mind. And increasingly, like just now compared to a few years ago, there really are options that are a couple, like a, in the U.S., a couple hundred dollars, which isn't nothing, but it's not a couple thousand dollars exactly. like, it, like it used to be. Right. And that's what, you know, when I first started this process, you know, genetic screening, they kept saying, that, you know, doctors would be like, well, it costs tens of thousands of dollars. And what do you want us to cover that for just on a thought? And I'm like, no, like my, my mom had it. My mom's mom had it. And because my mom's mom, you know, this was back in 1972 that she had passed, there wasn't genetic screening. There was no thought. It was, you have cancer, you died. That's, that's it. We're sorry, move on. And now with all of, you know, these new studies that are being done, we're so lucky that people are kind of going, Hey, you know, I feel like there's more and we're thankful every day that people are putting money and funding into these research programs because had I not known or had that not happened, I wouldn't know. And I wouldn't have had that opportunity. Yeah. Do you know, so what, what research program is your mom's DNA a part of? I do know. I broad cancer research registry. Yeah. I fit for that one. All I know. So I didn't get all the info from my dad just because I think like at the end when all of it was happening, it was just getting to be like, we knew that she was going to pass unfortunately. And I didn't care about the ins and outs, but at the very beginning I was really involved. You know, I was at every chemo appointment and wrote everything down when we had appointments with the doctors, but, um, they had sent away some of her tissue to the UK 
and it was transferred into some rat and <laughs> that's where they had kind of started that information and where they started that study. Hmm. So we found out after, but um, she did do a couple clinical trials. I know she did the um, uh, Rupacarib trial back in 2015 and that was for platinum resistant chemo people. And that was working really, really great for a long time. That was, you know, and that's why she got her second surgery. Like it was really uncommon for ovarian cancer patients to get a secondary surgery, but because she was part of that trial, they thought, you know, because it was going so well that that would be the end of it. And then it unfortunately stopped working really abruptly. It, you know, it was great for two years. Um, going through so much of the ovarian cancer experience with your mom, like what do you remember about your mother during that time and, and also tell me about your mother before she had ovarian cancer. Just like you said, you're so much alike. Sure. <laughs> she, um, yeah, they had a great life and we're really lucky. Uh, she, my dad retired when my mom was 43. So my mom retired as well. They both worked uh, for a bank here in BC and they bought a motor home and lived in Mexico for six months of the year. So they would live there from October to April and they would move back to my sister's farm on their, in their motor home from April to October and really lived the life. And that stopped when she got sick, when she had her second recurrence. They decided to buy a house closer here, which was awesome. But she was super active. She was an extremely healthy person. She was a crazy mountain biker. She did yoga every day. She had a glass of red wine every night and ate impeccably. She, you know, is one of those people that can have one cookie. <laughs> and I'm not that person. That's the one thing. <laughs> I have no self-control. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have no self-control when it comes to candy. So that's the tough part. But she was a happy, vibrant gracious human being who never had a bad word to say about anybody and I never knew how tough she was you know she was the youngest of seven and had lost her mom really young but was always just kind of you know did her thing and met my dad when I was three and had a happy life and just really enjoyed everything um when she got sick she was that person that had all the hope and thankfully, because we all got it as well, and we all were really, really hopeful that, you know, for the first four and a half years, even with the two recurrences, we were, we, there, it wasn't an option for her, for it to not go away. Mm -hmm. You know, it was going to, that was going to be it. You know, we're going to go through another round of chemo or another clinical trial, and then we'd be good. Um, she was positive through the whole thing. Even um, going into hospice, she had called me one night and told me she was going into hospice. And I lost it. I had a complete meltdown. And she called me the next day and she's like, I just, I hope you're not so upset. And I'm thinking like, how can I not be upset? Like we all equate hospice with end of life care. Mm -hmm. And she said, no, I'm just going in to get my pain managed at night. She's like, I just want to get a handle on the pain because it was really hard on my dad at the end. He, you know, wasn't sleeping because she was up and she couldn't sleep in bed. She had to sleep propped up on a couch. She ended up with a blood clot in her leg that was just excruciating and just really wanted to get her pain under control. So we went in thinking, hey, this is great. You know, she'll be in there for a couple of weeks. We'll get the pain managed somehow and then she'll come home. And she never came home, unfortunately. So she was positive, though. 
right. really, really positive throughout the whole thing. And she fought through a smile on her face the whole time. And in a hospice, the nurses were so amazing and they all wanted to hang out in her room. And she was positive and smiley faced. And always thanked them. It was so funny the last time we were there. The nurse had come in to give her her medication and it was awful. Like she was in a lot of pain that day. And she smiled and said, thanks so much. And I'm like, how can you, you know, like thankful even when she was going through that. Yeah. She sounds like a really lovely person. If I learned one thing from her was just to live your life in honor of that person. I think it's so important to model yourself um, with strength and poise and dignity and grace like she had. It was just a really positive experience, as awful as it was. It was a good learning lesson. Yeah. Yeah. And thankful we had the time we did. Did you get engaged before or after she passed away? It was after, but she had met him. Um, Dave and I have been together for just about five years. Uh-huh. And she loved him, which I was really good. She got to see me go from a really miserable marriage. I was married before to the father of my kids. And it was it was awful. You know, we were splitting up just as she was getting diagnosed. So I think it was really, you know, as awful as it is, it was good timing um, for that to happen because I was able to spend a lot of time with her, which was really great. And she got to see me leave a horrible marriage and find a great guy who has been so supportive through everything. You know, like, it's never been a question of um, if I had the surgery or not. He was so, so supportive in this. Like, I was done having kids. He's happy with mine. He doesn't have any of his own, but treats mine like they are. And it's been awesome. So I'm really glad to see, to know that she saw me happy. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure... For, I'm just imagine for her as a parent, just easier to let go of your kids when you know, when you, you feel like they, they have good partners. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I can't imagine the stress I would have put on her had I still been married. <laughs> it was yeah. always a sore spot for her anyway, so I think she was just really relieved. You said that your mom was diagnosed when she was in Mexico. When you first said that, I was thinking she was on vacation, but they were just on their six months of living down there, right? Yeah, so she, um, yeah, she was feeling off and had called me that morning and that she was coming home and said, you know, I'm coming back to Kelowna. And I said, oh, because super surprised. So they had just left. They had spent a week in, or two weeks in Yuma, Arizona, um, which was their normal trip and they weighed out the super hot, humid Mexican weather. And I was curious as to why I was excited because I hate when they leave. She's my best friend. And uh, she said she had looked like she was six months pregnant. And my mom, you know, was five foot nine, 125 pounds soaking wet. So something was obviously up. Uh, so I had gone and got an ultrasound done and they didn't really say much. They said, you need to get home. So I called my sister, uh, who's a nurse, and said, you know, like, what does ascites mean? Like, what is that? And she said, you know, I, I don't want to freak you out, but that's usually from cancer. And that's when we had the first meltdown. <laughs> and 
she came back. She got on a plane. She flew out of Mexico or, you know, they might have even been in Las Vegas. I have no idea at this point anymore. It was a whirlwind. So she came by herself and my dad drove up after with his friends and hit the motorhome and they were gracious enough to do that trek with him because I don't think he could have done it himself. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she found out the next morning. And at that time, what did they, did they give her a prognosis or let her know how long they thought they thought she would live? No. And they were really great about not generalizing that. I find like when I went to the first oncology appointment was about three days after diagnosis, I think. And I went to the oncology appointment. That was, you know, our first question. And it's a question that you don't want to ever ask, especially when that person's in the room. But mm -hmm. I think we all really needed the information at that point. Like, I just want to get the information so we can go from there. And the doctor said, you know, like, I mean, I've had patients that are around for six months or 15, 20 years. I can't, I won't until we get more information. I can't do that. Um, but provided the statistics, you know, like X amount percent, I can't even remember what the percent is, um, you know, are about five year mark. And we kind of fell exactly at that five year mark. She lived for about five years after she was diagnosed. Yeah, like just five and a half. Yeah. And it was worrisome for me. My um, paternal grandmother also passed from ovarian cancer about nine years ago and didn't have any testing done. So we don't know if it was if that was just because of the type of ovarian cancer that she had or if she declined any testing. Mm -hmm. And they still, I can't get her... Um, any blood work or any tissue released because I don't have power of attorney on anything. So I won't. That's so frustrating. It yeah. really is. And like there's family members that live, um, that like are closer to her that still live in Prince George where she passed and they won't sign off on it because they don't want to know. They're very close-minded about all of that. So you mentioned you have one sister. Do you have other siblings or just the one sister? Uh, I have two stepsisters. So not biologically related, and I have a half-brother from my biological dad's side. So no other uh, siblings who no. would be at risk for having the same mutation. What about, um, no. do you have like aunts or uncles or cousins on your mom's side? Yeah, so we found out um, my mom's brother has a daughter who tested positive for the mutation as well and was scheduled for surgery in August and has postponed it twice. Okay. So I'm hoping she's having it in September. That was the last word. So she's older. She is, I think she is 42, 44. Uh -huh. She's had all her kids. Her oldest is 18. She's definitely done with babies. She had a really busy summer and she's a teacher. So she really wanted to just have a summer break. Yeah before one last summer before yeah. she goes into menopause yeah because <laughs> that's she we've talked about it a little bit and I think she's just going to go straight into menopause and not worry about the HRT when you were thinking about the timing of the of the oophorectomy in your case did you consider waiting or thinking about more kids since you're with a with a new partner was that a factor for you or just with your three kids older did you know that you were done a little bit of both I have baby fever all the time <laughs> I am always on the lookout for new babies, but no, it was, I kind of felt I was done. I had my youngest or my oldest, sorry, at 19 and 
didn't really get to do much. I know I had three babies and I was a stay-at-home mom. I worked part-time and didn't get to travel and do anything. And now that my kids are kind of old enough to be on their own for a little bit, which is really exciting, I it was like, do you want to start this all over again? Like, we haven't had a stomach flu in our house, touch wood, for like five years. <laughs> it has been the best thing I could have ever dreamed for. I'm like, no more diapers, no more throwing up. This is great. Yeah. And the freedom. So now, you know, I've got a really great job and I can afford to travel a little bit. So now that the kids are older, let's start doing this. I couldn't imagine doing this again with a baby. Like, I just, I'm too old for this. Yeah. <laughs> I have no more energy. Like, I have enough energy to go to work 40 hours a week, and that's about it. Yeah. Um, and Dave was kind of, you know, we had the big talk, and he said, you know, I love kids, and I love babies, and I always thought I'd have my own kids, and now I do. And, I mean, that that'll send any woman into overdrive. That was the sweetest thing <laughs> I'd heard anyone say ever in my life. And it was just a really solid, no, you know what, we're done. This is, this is it. Yeah. But I mean, I have my crazy moments. Last week, my girlfriend at work caught me Googling, can you have a baby even if you don't have uteri uter your <laughs> ovaries? So, you know, that was, and I mean, you can, as long as you're on HRT, which is really great. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not doing that again. What else should I be asking you? My whole thing is I would love to have more awareness out there for ovarian cancer in general. I'm, you know, we see pink washing a lot. <laughs> and I mean, as important as breast cancer awareness is, there's so much more. You know, there's yeah. ovarian cancer kills so many women every year and the funding and research is finally just ramping up a little bit for it. But I think that it's so important for people to know that, you know, this is a huge killer of our women, our moms, our daughters, our sisters, our friends. It's, it's awful. And I can't stress enough how important it is for the awareness out there. And I mean, I don't have the time right now and I wish I did um, to devote a lot more time to getting the word out. But I do like um, the year after my mom passed, we did the ovarian cancer walk every year. Uh, but the year after she passed, we ended up fundraising over 1500 bucks, just me personally. And it was huge. That was a huge thing. Like, I think I had fundraised maybe $200 previous years. Mm -hmm. And that year was extra special. And, I mean, the walk happened soon after she had passed. It was rough. But we did it. And, you know, the surgeons that we'd all met and all of the um, oncologists were there, which was really great. Great support. And it's becoming a bigger walk every year here, which is really awesome to see more people turning out. This is in Kelowna, BC? Correct. Cool. I feel like talking to patients often, it comes up that patients, patients are very surprised to hear that a pap smear does not help screen for ovarian cancer. Right. But just kind of yeah, thinking it's, it's like, um, oh, it's general GYN, if they're, that they're getting GYN care, and they think that somehow that ties into ovarian cancer screening. <laughs> Surprised right. to learn that there's no good screening. Right, and so this is the other one where we, um, my doctor, again, my family care is so amazing. She, you know, listens to my crazy thoughts. At, at one point I was sure I was a hypochondriac, but it turns out I, you know, I was actually sick, which was great. <laughs> but she will fulfill any request I have. So right after my mom passed, I was I had a lot of anxiety and I was sure I was dying 
as awful as it is, I just, I was sure that something was killing me at that moment. And I, so I was, went to her office, I think a week after my mom had passed. And I was like, you ne need to check my CA-125. Like, I need to know what it is. And I mean, that's, you know, the basis marker if you're not premenopausal. We know the limit that my mom was supposed to be in. And I was like, I need to know that my CA-125 is lower than 15. <laughs> Can you please do it? And I mean, thankfully, I have free health care and it's all covered and you know there's no questions asked so she was happy to send me off my way to get my blood work done and, and it came, came back normal which I knew it would it was just I had to for peace of mind yeah so that's one tool that people can get checked I mean if they don't have to pay out of pocket it's great but uh, you see 125 can be a marker like a at least a baseline mm-hmm and really, like you're saying, it's 250 bucks in the States. Like, I mean, what is that? A month worth of coffee for some people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And well, in the in the U.S., there's a, like a common misconception that because in Canada, you have to or generally you have to have a personal diagnosis of cancer to be Correct. covered. Is that right? Yeah. Right. But in, in the U.S., if you have a second degree relative diagnosed with ovarian cancer at any age, you meet criteria for testing. So wow. if your grandmother was diagnosed at 80, you meet criteria. If your, if your aunt was diagnosed at 90, you meet criteria. So I think often people don't realize that and not right. all insurance follows that NCCN criteria, but usually they do. Um, and I think doctors are often not aware of that too, that this is like, no, this is something that their, their insurance will cover for them. Right. <laughs> So. Yeah, I think it's really important um, for doctors too to be staying up on top of all that stuff. And I mean, if it's not your specialty, they don't know, right? And I mean, my, right. my mom's main doctor was not an OBGYN. You know, mm -hmm. she was a family practice who was great with OB stuff, but it wasn't her specialty. And really, just I mean, she kind of dropped the ball, unfortunately. And I think that further testing would have solved a lot of stuff. But again, that's where that listening to your gut comes into play. And I've definitely pushed a lot of times to have some stuff checked out and it's always worked out. So I think it's really important for people just to know that, you know, just because your doctor has a degree doesn't mean they're, you know, current on everything. Right. It's like hairdressers. More education is great. <laughs> the more, the more stuff you go to, you don't want to look like uh, you've got a haircut from the 80s when you go into the hair salon you want that person to be on top of trend and I think it's really important for providers to educate themselves as often as they can in my experience and from the research I've done a lot of people in their families who have this genetic mutation also have breast cancer in their family mm -hmm. and I can't help but feel there's a link like every said well you know there is with BRCA but there, you know, we haven't found one with this, but they haven't found one just because there hasn't been any testing done. Mm. And it's like, it's crazy. Like my mom's mom, her two sisters had breast cancer. So like, did they not have the genetic mutation or, you know, was that something just happen chance? Who knows? And coincidence, but um, we're just kind of waiting for more research just to see what happens. I think it's really important that they keep doing research on that because who knows? Yeah, I think, and it's sometimes that's, it's like hard to sort out because the women who are getting tested in the first place are often because they have a family history of breast cancer and that's kind of mm -hmm. like why they come to attention and then breast cancer is so common. Um, right. 
But yeah, in in Canada, what are the like in the U.S. the general recommendations is for everyone to have a mammogram every year starting at age forty. Anyway, is it less yeah. frequent in Canada? No, it's the same here. Okay. Yeah, and and that's the, where else it comes into play too. Is that, I mean, I just had a girlfriend diagnosed and you know, the mammogram that she had every year didn't find it. And she found it on her own and it had been there for quite some time and it was ultrasound diagnosis. So I've pushed for that as well. And my doctor is good on signing off on that and will have me do ultrasound exams as well as mammograms just to be a hundred percent. In Canada, like if someone had, like here, if someone had a mutation associated with where we really were really sure that there is a high risk for breast cancer, there's also breast MRIs. Um, right. So is that standard in Canada or it's more the ultrasound? I haven't heard of it. It's ultrasound really. I mean, our, I couldn't imagine them trying to put more people through our MRI machine, especially here in Kelowna. We have one private facility now that charges astronomical amounts, but I mean, if you've got the money, you can get your diagnosis faster. Uh, people usually wait here on average of two years for an MRI, which is bananas because I've had four of them and I've had them within 24 hours. So I feel bad because I know every time I go get one, I'm bumping somebody, but it's been Uh necessary. So yeah, I I don't know. I haven't heard of them doing any. And I know that at the, um, like when, where they do mammograms, they do ultrasound as well. So it's the whole diagnostic imaging, but they don't have an MRI there. What would you say to someone who's listening to the podcast who has a family history of ovarian cancer? Um, maybe uh, they've thought about having BRCA testing done or a doctor's brought it up, or maybe they've had just BRCA testing done and it was negative and now they're hearing something else out there. What would you what would you want them to know? And also, what do you say to that person who's kind of like your relative who you mentioned, who's just like not sure that they want to know this information? Go do it. Go do it for your peace of mind and go do it for your family. There is honestly nothing more heartbreaking than losing your best friend or having to say goodbye to people. It is the worst thing that you'll go through. And if you can save one person, like what a gift my mom gave me to give me life twice. It's so important. I I don't think it makes sense to sit on the fence. I really don't. I think you really need to just do that. And if you choose to not have your surgery, that's one thing. But if you just need to go find out, you have to go find out. If you'd like to share your story, send an email to podcast at graygenetics.com. Gray Genetics provides independent telehealth genetic counseling services to most places in the U.S. and the world through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing. To book an appointment, visit graygenetics.com. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute medical advice and is also not a substitute for genetic counseling. Neither Gray Genetics nor any of its guests makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast. Evaluation of an individual's personal and family health history is a crucial part of genetic counseling and any recommendations.